Hi everyone, it's me. We're here. The MMA Frequency is back for another week of hard work. Last weekend, oui oui, mademoiselle, baguette. Oh, we wine was French, Francois. Last weekend, we went to Paris, the beautiful city of Alès, to see Rohan, Sir Rogan, Voyez de Menevance. And this weekend, it is Israel Adesanya versus Sean Strickland. Yeah, that sure is a main event, folks. So, let's might as well just get right into it. Save ourselves the pain. We have a couple of really, really interesting fights on this main card from Paris. So, we talked about Morgan Charrier versus Manolo Zucchini. I thought this was actually a very, very impressive debut in the UFC by Charrier, because oh, it's probably not the proper pronunciation, but give, give me a break. Cut me some slack. He dispelled my one real issue with him from the footage I had seen. In Cage Warriors, Morgan just looked a tad gun-shy. Just a wee bit inactive, but here he was stepping on his jab. He stayed active for the entire fight. He was circling defensively really well. Zucchini was no slouch. He was throwing heat too and staying competitive, but towards the end of the first round, he started mixing in that step-up body kick, sure as Scherer did, and that was the beginning of the end. This is, this is an MMA frequency rule. I haven't talked about it a lot on here, and I'm ripping this straight from Jack Slack. God bless him. But if you want to know if a fighter is hurt, or if they just plain didn't like taking a strike, changes in behavior, Look for the change in behavior. And Morgan Scherrer hit Manolo Zucchini with another big body kick. He immediately stopped throwing anything. He stopped flashing his jab. He stopped fainting. And he just started frantically circling around Scherrer. Remember how last week we were talking about how Al Castres did a really good job of keeping the right side of his body protected with his stances? Well, Scherrer and Zucchini were matched up orthodox, orthodox. So the right side of the body was completely open for just slamming in a zucchini's liver. It might as well open up a giant, glowing, kick-here boss battle spot for Scherer. Morgan threw a deep right up the middle that bent him over, and then he got a running lead onto his next step-up kick. Finished the fight. Looked really, really impressive. Fun debut by him. We'll see what he does in the future. Speaking of really, really fun fights, Benoit Saint-Denis versus Thiago Moises won. Benoit Saint-Denis continues to hate on the people of Brazil, but also continues to look excellent. He's got a 100% finish rate since he's come back down from welterweight to lightweight, and he just keeps showing off all the tools that he has got. And boy, howdy, does he have some tools. Thiago Moises is a tough out. He's a tough fighter. He's had a lot of the hard-fought fights in the UFC and a lot of hard-fought wins. Benoit kept the pressure going on the feet, outlanded him consistently, Mixed up his targets, head, body, and I predicted that Sandini would try to keep the fight on the feet by any means necessary, but he actually worked his wrestling against Thiago Moises to very good effect. He had a couple of slick little back takes up against the cage, and even dragged Moises down to the center of the octagon for a couple of times. Uh, I will say that when he had Moises in the turtle position, the first few times he did it, he kept his knee in a really bad spot. Instead of keeping his whole body to the side, he had his knee in between Moises' knee, and that got him knee-barred a couple of times. Moises kept throwing up the knee-bar, and then, to his to his credit, Sandini kept escaping the knee-bar and kept 
consolidating back in Turtle again and throwing strikes. But that was that was just one kind of little mistake he did on the ground. And then the only other real flaw was that open side counter because Sandini was southpaw, so he's throwing his left, and Thiago Moises was orthodox, so his right hand was a power hand. So occasionally when Benoit threw his left hand and he was out of position, he was overextended, Moises would just crack him over the top with the right hand, especially in those big flurries up against the cage. Moises kept hitting that right hand up until the finishing sequence. But eventually, Sandini got him down, and Moises folded to just the near constant pressure. Sandini got him to the floor again, and just wailed on him, wailed on him, wailed on him, was ground and pound until eventually Moises just gave up trying to get out of that position, and the ref ran in and stopped the fight. Very, very impressive by Benoit Sandini. Might have a number next to his name. Might not, who knows, but... He's definitely one of the best bangers in the lightweight division right now. Speaking of a guy who actually seems to have gotten a little bit of the mojo back, Volkan Westbeer versus Bogdan Guskov, whoever this guy is. Volkan actually looked really, really good here. And Guskov actually, I mean, as much as I just slagged him off, didn't look terrible either, so I can't even really credit the win to terrible opposition. But Volkan's left hand was on fire. Guskov could not close the distance without getting tagged by the left, and he could not trade anything without getting hurt on the counter. Anything Guskov landed, he got a, le- a left hook for his trouble. Volkan hurt him bad with a big left hook, and he pretty much immediately walked onto a second one. And that second big left hook dropped him, and it was the start of the finish. Oestemir's grappling also looked really, really good. He got a nice double leg early in the fight, and when he did trap Guskov with that second big counter left, he quickly, easily flattened him out, found the rear naked choke. Good for him. Glad he's found his mojo again. Fun fight. Speaking of unfun fights, Rosna Yunus versus Manon Furo. This is an unfun fight. Really, really depressing outcome from Rose. She lost the decision here. Seemingly, she's fired Trevor Whitman. People were... I was very, very concerned when she walked out without Whitman, and then the story pretty much immediately broke, like, during the fight, or right after the fight, that supposedly she has left Whitman's team, which, terrible idea, now that she's sticking with her groomer husband, Pat Barry, who, well, you know, love at first sight at age 16 when he was training her in the gym. Hate to see that. Fuck that guy. But... Yeah, without Whitman, who knows? Who knows? The the other thing, even without Whitman's game plan, she broke her right hand in the first half of the first round. But, yeah, not having Whitman didn't exactly help, because when she went back to the the stool after the first round, Pat Barry was like, Rose, your kicks are doing good. Now's not the time for them. Which, bizarre coaching strategy. And Rose did her best, relying on that southpaw stance while she was unable to throw her right hand. She was trying her best with, with the left, but Menon Faroe's jab was very, very good. It was very difficult for her to break through. Rose couldn't get any good takedowns going, no good shots, and when she ended up on anything, Faroe defended them very well. And this is the other thing. Faroe had her flaws. She was deeply in love with that lead right hand. At one point towards the end of the fight, she threw her right hook so hard she literally slipped and fell over. And the sidekicks for Pharrell were also kind of useless. She should have just 
throwing hands to the body instead of the ineffective sidekicks. She got tagged really hard by Rose on the counter off of one of them. Overall, definitely an impressive performance by Fro. She stuck it out. She held it down. Won against an opponent. Opponent orders of magnitude more talented than like Caitlin Chukagian. Proving I am wrong. She's not just a tall lad. Last was a one-two, but Rose didn't look terrible for flyweight. She she filled out her frame. Hopefully next time we get to see what two-hand Rose can do in there. But I think Thoreau is probably... Either they're going to make Thoreau versus Blanchfield, or she might just get the next title shot. Because we'll see. We'll see how that shakes out. And then, oh, the, the Pride of France, the Pride of Paris, gone. I've barely written anything about this, because it's really exactly what it is on the tin. There's an excellent, excellent performance for Cyril Gon. John Jones did not break him mentally, even if Sergei Spivak kind of looked mentally broken and assumed the role of crash test dummy in the fight. But Gon was seeing all the angles. He was using excellent footwork. He was constantly switching stances, mixing up his targets, going to the body, going to the head, throwing leg kicks, even though they were kind of, they were kind of, kind of like just like pawing leg kicks, but they were still, he, he was, throwing everything from everywhere, doing everything you need to do to chip away at somebody and break them down. And Gon does truly hate combination punching for some reason. He was just throwing straights, jabs, and kicks. But the first solid hook that he threw to the head that landed put Spivak on ice skates. I was also really, really loving the step-in knees from Cyril Gon. He started throwing those towards the end of the first round and into the second one of those hurt Spivak really, really badly. It was a nasty little step in knee. The bodywork was excellent once he started. He started running away with the bodywork before he started running away with shots to the head, which is interesting. And then, yeah, once he got Spivak hurt, just threw everything in the kitchen sink. Standing hammer fists. Standing back fists. And, yeah, folded them over. Really, really fun performance by Cyril Gone. And some, yeah, interesting fights to go over on that card. Alright, it's been a while since we've actually had an interesting touch of news on this program. And I mentioned it at the end of the show last week, but rumors have been swirling for weeks and weeks and weeks that Scott Coker's succession organization to Strike Force, Bellator, has been circling the drain. We've talked about a couple of Bellator fights on the air. They had an interesting Bantamweight Grand Prix. There were some fun outs in that tournament. But, yeah, supposedly the organization is losing millions, possibly tens of millions of dollars per year. Bellator is set to run two more events on their website, and they've stacked up Bellator 300 with a bunch of title fights a bunch of interesting prelim card fights. But after that, there is nothing. There are no events after Bellator 300. Nothing else is projected in the future. And ever since people started to notice that, talks of a potential sale of the Bellator IP and its entire roster of contracts, all of its fighters, have started swirling in the MMA media. And then, early last month, the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund officially spun off its sporting endeavors into SRJ Sports Investments, which is a separate holding company. And as of last week, SRJ Sports closed a deal for a minority stake in PFL, which we've talked about PFL on here before. 
They're kind of a tertiary MMA organization. They got the playoff format. They've got a couple of fun fighters, but they're, they mostly are allowed to exist on ESPN, and Dana White doesn't ruthlessly crush them because they are viewed as kind of much, much lesser. And they started out as like the regional promotion. They were World Series of Fighting, yada, yada, yada. Not that important. But what is important is that SRJ Sports invested $100 million into the company for a minority stake in ownership. And future PFL super fights, quote-unquote, like Francis Ngannou and Jake Paul's debuts. Jake Paul signed to an NBA company. God help us all. But yes, those fights are now expected to take place in Saudi Arabia, as well as the founding of PFL MENA, which is a PFL spinoff focusing on Middle Eastern fighters, similar to Ngannou's PFL Africa. So, do we understand where this is going? Are we seeing the vision yet? Because literally the day after the investment was announced, a sports business website published a story that PFL is in talks to acquire Bellator. Woof! In talks to acquire Bellator. And rumors have actually been... Everybody and their mother has a story on the Bellator sale. People have been saying that perhaps they've actually been in talks for weeks and weeks, maybe months. Some people have been saying that the deal's been closed already. But... This place, I forget what they're called, uh, Front Office Sports, have, have been saying that they're in talks to acquire Bellator and the brand has carried a price tag of up to $500 million, which I gotta say is kind of insane considering how badly they've been tailspinning recently. But let's put the story together. A tertiary MMA promotion that airs on ESPN, the UFC's current network, has courted investment from Saudi Arabia, an investor with limitless money, is seeking to merge with the failing and almost defunct former number two MMA in the brand in the world. They're going to absorb its fighters into their roster and create essentially a super company that can compete on a legitimate level with the UFC. People have been saying that the deal could close very soon. People have been saying the deal could close tomorrow, the deal could close next week. But you would create some legitimate incentive for once for the UFC to put some fire under their ass Especially if ESPN puts their hands up in the air and says, actually, we're good with the PFL. We don't want to re-sign your contract because we gave you too much money. I don't know if that's going to happen, but big things happening, folks. Big things happening. Okay. UFC 293. This weekend, there are a bunch of fights. Some of them interesting. Some of them not. I actually didn't write about this one, but the feature prelim is Carlos Olberg versus Dalman Jung. And this is, this is looking like a setup if I've ever seen one. Carlos, o- Carlos Olberg, part of Israel Adesanya's team, is on a three fight KO streak. And Dalman Jung is 0-2 in his last two fights and got knocked out by Dustin Jacoby. So this one is kind of looking like a little bit of a setup. There are a bunch of Australian fighters on the undercard, and not too many interesting ones on the main card, but let's get into it. So, Tyson Pedro versus Anton Turkalj. Honestly, I think it's really going to be a battle of the gas tanks, because Pedro has been looking good since he returned to the UFC after a long, long layoff, but he had a serious bit of difficulty with with Oh. with Modestus Bukaskis 
After their fight got out of the first round, he slowed down substantially. He was losing power on the strikes. He looked very, very bad in comparison to Gavaskis and just did not look like first-round Tyson Pedro. On the other hand, Turk Alge's own two in his UFC main roster career were both losses of coming against really good, undefeated guys. He lost to Jelton Almeida. That was kind of a, a, a rim scene. But he dropped Vitor Petrino in the second round of their fight, and his cardio absolutely held up through the decision. Even when he was taking a beating, he has a solid chin on him. He showed some competencies on the ground in that fight as well. So if he can escape the first round with Pedro, he might have a shot. However, because I've just wasted my breath talking about how a light heavyweight fight could become interesting, I'm going to predict firefight that ends in the first half of round one. Yeah, this fight only gets interesting if neither guy hasn't gotten a finish in the first round. Then we'll really get to see, you know, when the feet hit the fire. Speaking of shitty firefights that are going to end quickly, Justin Taffa is fighting Austin Lane. It's a rebooking of their epic duel back in June when Lane got his whole ass hand inside of Justin Taffa's eye and it had to be ruled a no contest. It's an epic duel between a guy who uses his splayed fingers as a jab and a guy who somehow missed the heavyweight weight limit. So Austin Lane was actually a former defensive end in the NFL. And with his size and reach, he should in theory be a formidable heavyweight. But his outside of the UFC record is entirely fraudulent. Got finished by Greg Hardy on the Contender Series, of all people. And pretty much all of these guys he fought in regional promotions are like, they're somehow on a level, they're like the jobbers to the guys who got into the UFC to be heavyweight division jobbers, which is intense. Austin Lane also laid in an absolutely flagrant dick kick in his one Dana White contender series fight. So he has a sterling record of one major foul per, per UFC appearance. He did actually manage to get out from underneath a guy and knock him out, TKO. So that shows some level of ability, I guess. But similarly, Justin Taffa has lost to such UFC luminaries as Jorgen DeCastro and Jared Bandera. Justin seems to have some legitimate power in his hands, but his last finish came off of a absolutely gift-wrapped left hook to Parker Porter, who was running at Tafa with his hands at his nipples. So it's going to be a clash for the ages, folks. How low can we go? All right, so Manel Kopp has had kind of a sordid UFC run. Since his fight in December of 2021, he has had six fights scheduled. He has fought in one of them. All of his opponents have pulled out on him. He has not pulled out on any one of his opponents. He was originally fighting Kai Car France. It's going to be a great fight and probably had title contention implications. But Kai Car France pulled out a couple weeks ago with a concussion. Felipe Dos Santos, he is a regional Brazilian fighter who made the jump to LFA. It was going to be on the contender series a few weeks back. But literally the day before he was scheduled to fight on the contender series, he got pulled and booked for this fight instead because the the day the day before his fight was supposed to go down, Kai Kara France pulled out with concussion. I had and yeah, I gotta say from this one LFA fight that I've seen, the kid does not look super impressive. He was fighting for his life in all three rounds against a guy who could not even break through to the LFA level. He was zero two in the LFA. 
He's getting constantly taken down. He's not defending strikes of the body well, and he really just won on activity and edging out on damage. Manel Kopp is the kind of fighter who has no such weaknesses. He's a talented striker. He's a solid grappler. And it feels like a pretty big layup for Kopp to get a solid win here. I'm, I'm not really sure what Felipe Dos Santos could even approach. You know, I don't even know where he has an advantage in the game, so. And once again, just my luck with me saying that, he's going to knock Kopp out in the first round. Speaking of... Uh, speaking of bad fights, Tai Tuivasa versus Alexander Volkov. This is one of those fights where the heavyweight meme magic is just it's just floating in the air, just circling. The, 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 the heavyweight meme magic pixie dust is going to be falling from the ceiling when they ring the bell for this one. Drago has been on a little bit of a run recently, but that run has consisted of wins over Martian Tybora, Alexander Romanov, and a Kind of early stoppage, a protested early stoppage of Jared, Jaredino Rosenstruck. Volkov has a natural physicality. He's got clearly some manner of skill for the division. He's got power in his hands and all that. But it feels to me like he's just the best of the non-elite heavyweights. On the other hand, Taito Yabaza is a complete and utter hype job hack fraud by the UFC. He's beaten almost nobody of note except for some former Wash stars. And he somehow ended up in a title eliminator fight against Cyril Gaon, where he got his ass handed to him. Volkov is taller than him, longer than him, got a better chin than him, and Volkov should just absolutely pick him off at range. But, once again, Volkov is the best of the non-elite, so there's always some chance for him to blow it and get KO'd wildly, as the mean magic pixie dust just sprinkles its way down into the arena. And so, on to our main event. The last style bender is absolutely suffering from success. He would have been facing Drikas Duplessis this weekend. He was coming off of an absolutely disgusting and criminal TKO win over Robert Whitaker. But the true African champion was hurt. He was unable to make a September date off of a fight in July. And somehow, somebody even more racist than Drikas is taking the title shot. So, I mean, let's just let's take a look. So, number one in the rankings, Drikas, hurt. Two, Whitaker, beat him twice. Three, Cannoneer, who is the backup for this fight, beat him. Four, Vittori, beat twice. Let's skip. Six, Costa, beat him. Seven, Brunson, beat him. Seven, Roman Delice, they're tied at seven for some reason. Delice is coming off of a loss. Nine, Jack Hermanson, coming off of a deeply embarrassing loss to Roman Delice, the guy one spot above him. Ten, Brendan fucking Allen. So there is nobody for him to fight besides Drikas, and Drikas can't make the date. So UFC number five ranked middleweight contender, Sean Strickland, is getting the call. And now we have to deal with Sean Strickland versus Israel Adesanya in the main event of a pay-per-view with no other title fights and no other draws. Strickland really feels like a one-trick pony to me. He's, he's long, he's active, and he has decent cardio. His, his fights with Jack Hermanson, Jared Kandanir, and Nasruddin Mamov were all boring as sin. And he did pick up a finish over Abus Magomedov recently, but Abus was literally gasping for air after the first round of their fight. Strickland does have a solid jab, and he does double up on that jab, but if Adesanya can use his footwork and cut angles on him, he can neutralize that threat. 
especially because Sean Strickland is a guy who walked down one of the best left hookers in MMA history with no head movement and a back as stiff as a board. So if he just approaches Adesanya on a straight line and Adesanya is cutting angles on him, he's going to be able to tee off on the guy. I think Adesanya will spend a round or two feeling him out because Strickland will definitely be looking to push the pace. He's going to be trying to hurt Izzy and come after him. But I don't foresee like a slow, measured fight playing out. I think Adesanya is going to be able to completely dismantle him, push for a finish. He's just too sophisticated, you know what I mean? I don't even... <sighs> this is one of those fights where, once again, if I've said it once, I've said it a million times, either the thing that we all expect is going to happen will happen, or we're all going to be talking a lot the next time we see each other. I'd put the money on Israel Adesanya. I'm, I'm going to put my word on Israel Adesanya, but who knows? Maybe he gets hurt by the first quadruple jab in MMA history and Strickland knocks him out cold. <sighs> I don't even want to keep talking about this. I've I've done my due diligence. I've I've done my time for this episode. Valentina Shevchenko versus Alexa Grasso 2 next weekend. Why do you hate me, Dana White? Oh. Alright. My name is Joe. This has been another another episode of the MMA Frequency. Bye-bye, everyone.